about this, and he was inviting people to turn to Jesus. And he wasn't combative. He was gentle. Uh, he was approachable, but still carrying these signs on a large pole strapped to his back, walking around with his megaphone. Well, you can imagine the sort of response he got from the Bostonian crowd. Uh, belligerent, mocking, name-calling, a lot of swearing. Uh, it wasn't a good scene for this guy, but he walked the streets bravely. I think that many people, especially people outside of the church, when they're confronted with the reality or just the mere idea that history has a finite point, it's coming to a close, and Jesus is the one that ushers in the closing of that chapter, when they're confronted with that idea, they react just like you would expect. They don't believe it. They find it ridiculous. They think that's the stuff of crazies. And I think even within the church, many of us don't like to think about the end of the world or that time when Christ returns. The subject matter is confusing. It's intimidating. And to be honest, sometimes it can just be downright scary to think about what all that is going to be like. But it doesn't have to be. The second coming of Christ is not an unsolvable mystery. Granted, there are a wide variety of points of view as to how all the things play out and, and when Christ returns and, and what happens around His returning. A lot of opinions on those things. But there are some basic truths that all Christians, regardless of our perspective on this issue, can agree on. We may not agree on the particulars, but there are some big-ticket items that we can all agree on. In Mark chapter 13 helps us focus on those most important and basic truths. Uh, and, and it teaches us how to wait well for the return of Christ. And so the big question you might ask is, so what? And what does this matter? This probably wasn't on your radar this week. You weren't walking around thinking, I can't wait to get to church Sunday and learn about the second coming of Christ. You're thinking, I've got bills to pay. I've got a doctor's visit to go to. I've got a spouse to fix or a spouse to find. I've got kids to discipline. I've got all these other issues, and all that's fair and true. But this issue of the second coming of Christ, it permeates our lives in ways you may not understand or yet value. I think one, if... If this is important to Jesus, it ought to be important to us. And what we read in Mark 13 today is spoken just a few days before Jesus is crucified. Here in his final hours, Jesus sets aside this pointed time to explain to his disciples this event that will come in the future and how to live in the waiting until that event. I think if it's this important to Jesus, it ought to be important to us as well. And what's more... An understanding of the second coming of Christ does not turn you into a weirdo. It turns you into a saint. It impacts our holiness. It affects the way we live. It rearranges the things we value. It turns us into people who have a heart that beats for God. So my goal today in preaching the second half of Mark 13 is to unite us around some bedrock beliefs about the second coming of Christ. There are some things where we're going to nail down and say this is true for all Christians and of all persuasions. This is what the Bible gives us. And these are things that can unite us regardless of our, the labels we use for our end times theology. Okay? Now, 
Mark chapter 13 is a notoriously difficult piece of Scripture. And we spent time in the first half of it a few weeks ago. Uh, and if you were with us, I, I talked about how there's different approaches to this. And some people will say Mark chapter 13 is only about the second coming of Christ. I don't agree with that. And so I plant my flag in a different place on Mark 13. Jesus in Mark 13 addresses two historical events. One historical event is the destruction of the Jewish temple and the city of Jerusalem. And the second historical event is his second coming. It might help if you see a structure of chapter 13. I shared this with you a few weeks ago. And uh, there are four simple parts I say simple. There's four clear parts to Mark chapter 13. If your brain works a little like mine, it helps to kind of have a road map of where you're going before you read. So a couple of weeks ago, we spent time with verses 1 through 23, which is information about the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem. You'll remember that Jesus and his disciples are leaving the temple complex uh, at the beginning of chapter 13, and one of the disciples comments, uh, how awesome this place is in a statement of nationalistic pride. Jesus says, all of this is going to be torn down. Not one stone will be left on the other. The disciples ask, well, can you give us, tell us what are the signs that these things are going to happen and the time when these things will happen. And Jesus launches into this instruction about the destruction of the temple. We're going to spend our time with these bottom three points this morning. Jesus first talks about the destruction of the temple, and that happened it happened in the year 70 A.D. Uh, there was insurrection in Jerusalem. A Roman army came and laid siege to the city. Uh, it was a grotesque scene attested by eyewitness historians. Uh, and so the thing that Jesus prophesied happened in the year 70 A.D. And then from there, Jesus talks about, in verses 24 to 27, he gives information about his second coming. And then he ends with two parables. A parable about a fig tree that gives insight into the destruction of the temple. And then the last is a parable about a homeowner that leaves and is going to come back. And that parable gives us a little more insight into the second coming of Jesus. So again, the four parts here, destruction of the temple, second coming of Christ, parable about the destruction, parable about the second coming. We're going to root down into those three uh, final segments this morning as we finish out this chapter of Matthew, or excuse me, Mark. So I want you to follow along with me in your Bible as I read Mark chapter 13. I'm going to start in verse 24. So Jesus has already given these instructions about what the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem will be like, and then he shifts topics in verse 24. Listen to what Jesus says. But in those days, following that distress... The sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And He will send His angels and gather His elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. 
No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with his assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. So in this second half of Mark chapter 13, I want to highlight three truths about the return of Jesus that should unite all believers, fuel you with hope, set you on a path of sanctification. What are these truths that we can unite around? If you're taking notes, the first truth is this. The church believes in the visible return of Christ. It's a bit redundant for me to say I want to give you truths about the return of Christ and say number one is that Christ is returning. But I just want to make this crystal clear for us. The Christian church for as long as we have had God's Word, has believed in the visible return of Jesus Christ. That there will be a day when He physically returns and we see with our own eyes and we hear with our own ears His coming and His gathering of the elect. When we get to verse 24, there's a shift in subject matter. Jesus has been instructing His disciples about how to weather the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Because when that happens... Now, from Jesus' perspective, it's future tense by about 40 years. When that event happens, it's going to feel apocalyptic to all of the followers of Jesus. It's going to feel like the end is here. And Jesus says, that's not, that's not the end. These are only birth pains. This is just the beginning. But that's not the end. And so here's how you endure it. Then we get to verse 24, and Jesus shifts topics. The disciples had not even asked him about a second coming. They're still grappling with the reality of Christ's coming death, and they sure don't believe in the resurrection at this point, even though Jesus has told them repeatedly, this is what's going to happen. But Jesus, in his grace, gives them this information and this insight about his second coming. So uh, there's a few things that might be tricky in this passage. Let's highlight a couple of them. Look with me at verse 24. Jesus says this, "...in those days following that distress." Now, you may have a different translation of the Bible that doesn't have the word distress there. Instead, it says tribulation. And that word tribulation is a good word. It's an accurate word. But it can be problematic for us as modern readers who have different theological categories for things. You see, the way so many of us in the church think of the word tribulation is as a certain period of time of turmoil and suffering that, that somehow happens sometime around the return of Jesus. So for us, tribulation is often spelled with a capital T, the tribulation. But I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here in verse 24. He's not talking about the tribulation, but a tribulation. And that tribulation is the destruction of the temple. So he says, after that distress, that turmoil, that suffering, after that tribulation, then this other thing is going to happen. So following that destruction, certain cosmological events will take place. That's what Jesus says in verse 24. 
right? The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. Stars will fall from the sky. Heavenly bodies will be shaken. Those things will happen. And then the Son of Man will be seen coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Let's talk for a second about the timeline of these things. Because that's problematic also for a lot of readers. How are we to make sense of this? If Jesus says, well, okay, the, the temple's going to be destroyed and then the Son of Man will come, he talks about it as if those things are really, really close to each other. But just a careful view of history would tell us well, that second thing hasn't happened yet. The return of Christ has not occurred. So how are we to make sense of this when Jesus talks about them as if they're so close, but yet it doesn't seem like they really are? Well, first of all, there's no need to panic as if Jesus might be incorrect and we need to fix it. You see, Jesus never gives us a certain amount of time between these events. He just simply says, one happens first and the other happens second. That's it. He just gives us the order of things. He nowhere speaks of a timeline between the two. And I think Jesus speaks the way he does with a sense of immediacy in these events because from his divine perspective, those things seem to be really, really close. Jesus for sure knows how you and I experience the passage of time, but Jesus also has a divine perspective in which things happen in a different way and are viewed in a different way. It's all a matter of perspective, and you might be more familiar with concepts of near and far depending on perspective than you might realize. Let me show you a picture. If you've ever been to a baseball game you've seen a, or watched one on TV, you've seen a center field camera shot. And from center field, it looks like pitcher and batter and catcher and ump are actually pretty close to one another. From this perspective, they seem to be right on top of each other. If we look at the next picture, you flip the camera around from home plate, they look even closer to one another. It, it looks like the pitcher's right on top of the batter, and, uh, and so they seem really close. It's a matter of perspective. But the next picture is from the third baseline, and there you get a sense for how far 60 feet and 6 inches really is. It's a matter of perspective. Are they close to one another? Well, yes, when I look from this vantage point, they are close to one another. Are they close to one another? Not really. They're far apart when I look from this vantage point. Or if you've ever driven towards a mountain range, you may have seen a mountain that's close and one that's behind it, and you think, oh, those are right next to each other. How cool. And then you realize, no, this was just a matter of perspective. There's actually 100 miles from one peak to the next. And so when Jesus speaks about these things, destruction of temple and then the Son of Man will come, I think this is the way he approaches it. With, from a divine perspective, there is a sense of immediacy in it. But in the meantime, you and I are here ticking by one second at a time until all of these things come to pass. So the issue of tribulation can be a bit problematic. The issue of the timeline can be a bit problematic. But there's a few things in this passage that we can just really root down in without any problem at all. Number one, Jesus is going to return. Jesus is coming back a second time. He's coming back for his bride, the church. We can count on that. His return will be visible in some certain extreme parts of theology. And I would hesitate to even call it Christian theology. There's teaching that says Jesus has come in an invisible way. And in fact, this is one of the core tenets of the Jehovah's Witness church cult is that Jesus made an invisible return several years ago. When you predict dates and nothing happens, the easy fallback is it was invisible. 
So this is something that is outside of orthodox Christianity, a belief in an invisible return of Christ. I I would even say borders on heretical is indeed heretical. Uh, What the Bible clearly teaches is Christ returns, and that return is seen. At that time, men will see. When Jesus talks about his return, he talks about it happening alongside some cosmological events. Do you see the poetry at the end of verse 24 and start of verse 25? The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. Stars will fall from, the sky, fall from the sky. Heavenly bodies will be shaken. What are we supposed to do with that? Oftentimes we have speakers, writers who sort of live in this world that have said this. They'll say these are cosmological happenings. And when you see these things happen, then the return of Christ is not far behind. It's great for us to talk about this in the wake of the super wolf blood moon. Because there's all these writers and preacher types and speaker types who get frothy at the mouth at all of this stuff. And they speak incorrectly. I say that with confidence, not because I'm the expert on this matter, but I'm just going to believe what Jesus says in Mark chapter 13. Because these cosmological signs are not indications that his coming are near. Far from it, what the Bible shows us is that these accompany his coming. They are with him when he comes. This type of language is used multiple places in the Bible. I want to show you an example and help us understand how we are to make sense of this type of cosmological language. Isaiah chapter 13 uses similar language to describe God's judgment on Israel's enemies, Babylon. Look at what... God says in Isaiah 13, he says, See, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the earth a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. Now here's the similar language. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pride of the arrogant and lay low the insolence of the tyrants. Now, what do we do with this language that's underlined where it talks about these cosmological events? Well, the way God's people have always understood such language is as poetic. It's figurative. It's not taken literally. It is poetic language that's used to describe a literal judgment in this case. This judgment really happened around the year 539 B.C., The hand of the Lord moved against Babylon. His judgment was felt. These cosmological signs are not recorded. They did not literally happen. That doesn't mean the prophecy wasn't true. It doesn't mean God's judgment didn't occur. They were never intended to be literal. It's called the language of theophany. When God shows up to act for judgment or blessing, this type of grand language describes the indescribable, whether that's blessing or judgment. When God comes on the scene, it's unmistakable. It's not with a whimper. It's with planets shaking. This type of language helps us understand a bit better what it's like when God acts. This language is found throughout the Bible. Jeremiah chapter 4, Ezekiel chapter 32, Amos chapter 8, Acts chapter 2. So Jesus is not promising in Mark 13 that he's going to appear after a blood moon. If you've got a Facebook friend that said that this past week or quoted Joel chapter 2 or something like that, or if you did that, listen, 
Facebook eschatology is not going to get you very far. This is not what Jesus is saying. Blood moon and then Son of Man. He's saying the Son of Man comes and then creation is decreated at His coming. The next time someone says a blood moon is the sign that the return of Christ is near, you, just, you respond this way, boo! That's not right. That's not biblical. That's not helpful. It's not good to walk around in some foamy panic when we have the Word of God that gives us clear help and direction and guidance. Why does Jesus come back? What's the purpose of His second coming? In a word, it's judgment. Look at what Jesus says in verse 27. The Son of Man will send His angels and gather His elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. It's judgment. He's going to gather his bride, the church, to himself. Those who are his will be gathered. Those who are not his will not be gathered. There's this point of finality beyond which identification with Christ is no longer possible. Either you are found to be his or you are found to not be his. And whether that happens before your funeral or at your funeral, there's a day of final judgment that every person faces. On the day that the Son of Man appears, for some people it will be the most incredible day. For other people it will be the most terrifying day. But it doesn't have to be terrifying if today you would say yes to Jesus Christ. Not just so you can escape scary hell and scary fire and scary bad place. That's not the motivation for loving Christ or for trusting Him as your Savior. We turn to Him because we believe in the work He's done to save us. He died in your place for your sin so that you could be granted all the blessings of a blameless, holy life. He takes your sin, you get His holiness, and this happens by faith by trusting, by believing in Him that He came, He died, and He rose again. And when you put your faith in Jesus for your salvation, you turn your life away from your sin and to Christ, when you do that, then we don't think about the end of time as something to be scared of or terrified by. But we look forward to that day when we see our Savior face to face. Jesus Christ is going to return. It will be a visible return. And on that day, brother and sister, you want to be found numbered among those elect. There's another truth from Mark 13 that can unite us as a church. The truth is this, that the church trusts the promise of Christ's return. We believe He's coming and we trust His promise about His coming. So after... Speaking about his return, Jesus shifts gears back to the topic of the destruction of the temple. And he gives a parable of a fig tree, relates it to the destruction of the temple. He says, look, when you see a fig tree with soft branches and leaves beginning to blossom, then you know summer's near. 
In the same way, when you see these signs happening, these things happening, then you know this is near also, this destruction of the temple. What is the sign? What are the signs that Jesus has spoken of? If you were to go back and read earlier in chapter 13, you remember Jesus spoke about an event called the abomination of desolation. It's when a sacrilegious thing happens in the holy place of God. And that for sure happened repeatedly when the Romans came in and took over Jerusalem in 70 A.D. So when you see those things happening, you know this destruction is near. And then Jesus says in verse 30, he says, I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Again, this is a place where we get a little, we get a little antsy and we think, if we relate verse 30 to the second coming of Christ, then we've got a problem. If we think when Jesus says these things will happen, will not, or uh, this generation will not pass away until all these things have happened, if we think he's talking about his second coming, then we've got a timeline issue. But he's not. He's speaking about the destruction of the temple. And he tells the disciples this stuff will happen in a generation. The disciples and their contemporaries will see the destruction of the temple. A generation in biblical terms is about 40 years. The temple was destroyed just right at about 40 years after Jesus spoke these words. The key verse for us in this parable of the fig tree is verse 31. Look at what Jesus says there. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Jesus makes a statement about the absolute certainty of his words. His vision of the destruction of Jerusalem was crystal clear. What he promised would happen did happen. Jerusalem was destroyed by a Roman army uh, just 40 years after this. And then what Jesus said about the, uh, Jerusalem and the temple was absolutely true. Therefore, what Jesus says about his second coming likewise is true and trustworthy and believable. Now, it can be hard to believe in the second coming of Christ when so many people outside of the church find it unbelievable. But let me remind you very quickly how finite human knowledge is. In 1936, the New York Times printed an article with this line, a rocket will never be able to leave the Earth's atmosphere. I think we call that fake news. 1962, Decca Recording Company said of the Beatles, we don't like their sound and guitar music is on the way out. I don't know what's going to replace guitar music in 1962. Accordion music perhaps? I don't know. But they got that one way wrong. In 1977, a man named Ken Olson, founder of a company called Digital Equipment Corporation, said, there's no reason anyone would want a computer in their home. <laughs> got it wrong. Got it way wrong. Look, when this is the track record of human prophecies, I don't see any reason why we would doubt Jesus. Christian, be confident in the promise of Christ's return. There's no need to doubt it will happen simply because finite people with pending funerals find it ridiculous. It's going to take some courageous faith on your part to believe the word of Jesus over the mocking of man. But big deal. You stand in line with people like Noah and Moses and Gideon and Esther when you root yourself in the word of God over the words of men. Our theology is never, never dictated by popular opinion, but by the Word of God that will never pass away. 
So the church believes in the visible return of Christ. Second, the church trusts the promise of his return. Finally, this third truth that unites us, the church waits and watches for Christ's return. We wait and we watch for the return of Christ. So after the parable of the fig tree, Jesus shares one more parable about the owner of a house who goes on a trip. Before he leaves, he puts servants in charge, gives them work to do, and then he takes off. And there's one servant who's put on watch. He's to look for the master when the master returns. And the issue is this. When the master comes home, he doesn't want to find his servants being lazy, sleeping, not doing the things they're supposed to do, finding the jobs undone and the home in disrepair. He wants to come home to the servants doing what the servants are supposed to be doing. And that's how it should be for the church. The issue is not look busy. The issue is do the work while we wait. God has given us work to do, and so that's what we're supposed to be about. It's another time in this chapter where Jesus warns us not to be preoccupied with seeking out signs or the time of his return. Important line here in, is verse 32. Jesus says, no one knows about that day or hour. No one. No man, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Only the Father. Jesus himself, the Son of God, doesn't know the hour of his return. And if Jesus is okay living in that mystery, don't you think perhaps we should be okay also? Absolutely, we should be. We should trust that God has the timeline perfectly laid out and that he won't send his son one moment too early or one moment too late. And so we don't need to concern ourselves with the clock or the calendar. We need to be working, not watching this for signs. One noted theologian, I heard him say recently this very profound line about this very chapter of the Bible. He said this, here's the secret to the sign of Jesus' coming. The sign of his coming is his coming. When Jesus shows up, that's when you'll know he's coming. And until then, we wait and we watch for his return. Jesus tells us how to wait. He tells us to live in the awareness that he could return at any moment. That's what the servants in the parable do. The master could be home at any time. That's how you and I are to live our lives. Not panicky, not digging shelters, but doing the work that he's given us to do with an awareness that any moment, any day could be the day. When I was talking about this passage with Pastor Stephen, uh, he made a great point that I'm going to steal. He said this. He said, biblical prophecy is always a call to holiness. The intent is not just to work you up. The intent is to call you to walk faithfully according to the Word of God until that Word of God is fulfilled. And that's true here in Mark 13 also. Jesus gives us this information about His second coming so that you and I would know that this is the day for us to walk in holiness and to strive to live more in line with the Word of God, to turn away from sin. A profound part of our holiness is the spread of the gospel. We must not be found asleep at this task when Christ returns. We've got to tell the good news of the gospel with urgency and with compassion. In my very limited imagination, I picture this type of scene. Jesus splits the sky and he appears with angels in tow. 
He dismisses his angels to the four winds of the earth, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. They're going to go and gather the elect. But then he pulls two angels aside and he says, hey, I've got a special assignment for you too. There's this group of people on Boston's south shore that have believed my word so ferociously that they have shared the gospel with courage and boldness in a very, very dark place. And the result has been thousands of lives transformed because they've put their faith in me. This is a two-man job to gather those elect. I need you to go and get them for me. Because the church waits well when we proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And we wait well when we root ourselves in holiness and strive to live according to the Word of God. You wait well when you pray, when you teach your children the Word of God, when you explain Easter to your grandchildren, when you open your dinner table to your neighbors and friends, when you study the Word of God with fellow Christians, when you sing praises to God, when you resist temptation and run towards holiness, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do in the name of Christ, that's how the church waits and watches for the Master to return. So Mark 13 has given us much to think about today and much to be united around. Christ is returning. We will see that return. We can trust in His Word, and we know what it means to wait and to watch well for His return. And can you imagine what that day will be like? What if it was today? How would Jesus find you? Today, you might say, hey, I'm beat up. Things have been difficult. Faith has not always been easy. Sin has been a constant passenger and I've been to way too many funerals, and I've had way too many diagnoses, and I've taken way too much medicine. This has been a hard wait. But one of my preachers, one of my favorite preachers, said this about the day Christ returns. I want you to see his quote. When Jesus comes again, everything will change forever. Jesus will gather you to himself. At long last, your fleeting fellowship with Christ will give way to direct contact as you see him face to face. You'll go from being a refugee in the world to being a ruler with Christ. You will no longer be like Abraham and his family camping out as strangers in the promised land. Instead, you will be like the Israelites triumphantly following Joshua across the Jordan into your inheritance. When Jesus returns, you will be saved to sin no more, to grieve no more, to die no more. For those who love Jesus, the end of the world will bring the fulfillment of all hope. The last day will be our best day. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, come. but I am grateful for your delay. Because in your delay is the grace of the gospel. Father, in your delay, the story is told and people hear and they believe. 
your elect increases by the spread of this gospel. So help us as your church to wait well. Give us discernment that we would not be drawn away from the truths of your word by people with microphones or publishing deals. Let us find your word satisfying and trustworthy. Don't let us question the promises you've made because in our eyes, 2019 years seems like a long time. Lord, let us believe that word that will never pass away. And don't let us get distracted by things that happen with planets and stars, but Lord, let us keep our eyes focused on what the work you've called us to do, given us to do. Thank you for that grace. God, I pray that this morning you would increase the number of your elect by awakening faith in someone in this room today, that you would draw one of my friends to you, that they would trust in you for their salvation. And I pray that you would strengthen my brothers and sisters in the faith this morning by this word, that the evidence of our seriousness in the belief of your second coming would be found in the proclamation of the gospel and our commitment to personal and corporate holiness. Father, thank you for the day you will return. Thank you for the confidence we have in the salvation you have given us. Lord, may we wait well until that day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.